Good to see you all. God bless you. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3? 1 John 3. Now, in chapter 3, John uh, is contrasting the children of God with the children of the devil, even though there's always going to be exceptions. What do you mean? Well, it's never cut and dry, black and white. I mean, sometimes Christians can be carnal, living more for the world at any given time in their walk than the Lord. Uh, you can think that, well, they're, they're unbelievers. Well, some people are just carnal, all right? And then you have unbelievers who can be, you know, very moral and kind and loving, and sometimes even more so than Christians, okay? But what, what John is doing is he's giving us, in general, uh, traits and behaviors that identify Christians from non-Christians. So let's read verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, when you read that, it sounds like John is saying something very extreme. That if a Christian, if a person sins, that they're not a Christian. They're of the devil. You think, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. But it comes through in the Greek differently. Uh, let me read to you the way it comes through in the Greek. Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. The Greek is does not practice sin. Does not live habitually in sin. Whoever sins, and the idea is deliberately, habitually is a lifestyle, has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Verse 8, he who sins, again, practices, sins is of the devil, and so on. Uh, I think Warren Worsby, a uh, commentator, pastor, and now with the Lord, uh, put it this way, said, and I quote, to practice sin is to sin consistently as a way of life. It does not refer to committing an occasional sin. It is clear that no Christian is sinless, but God expects a true believer to sin less, not to sin habitually. Every great personality mentioned in the Bible sinned at one time or another. Abraham lied about his wife. Moses lost his temper and disobeyed God. Peter denied the Lord three times. But sin was not the settled practice of these men. It was an incident in their lives totally contrary to their normal habits. And when they sinned, they admitted it and asked God to forgive them. An unsaved person, even if he professes to be a Christian but is a counterfeit, lives a life of habitual sin. Sin, especially the sin of unbelief, is the normal thing in his life. He has no divine resources to draw on. His profession of faith, if any, is not real. This is the distinction in view in 1 John 3 verses 1 to 10. A true believer does not live in habitual sin. He may commit sin, an occasional wrong act, but he will not practice sin, make a settled habit of it. 
The difference is that a true Christian knows God. A counterfeit Christian may talk about God and get involved in religious activities, but he does not really know God. The person who has been born of God through faith in Christ knows God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because he knows them, the idea is knows them in a deep, intimate way, he lives a life of obedience. He or she does not practice sin. Now, as we said last time, guys, there are people today who consider themselves Christians but are actively practicing sins, things that God has forbidden, like homosexuality. You have uh, many practicing homosexuals who believe they're Christians. That's very sad because if you are involved in sin and yet in your mind you've justified it, you've rationalized it, then you've circumvented any conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's no conviction to get right with God if you already think you are right with God. The devil has really pulled the wool over your eyes. I want to see homosexuals saved. I don't hate gays. I've got people in my family that are homosexual. I pray for them. I don't want to see them go to hell. I certainly don't want them to have a false sense of security because the Holy Spirit can't really get in there and work in their heart and really convict them, right? But you have people today who are openly practicing sin and yet claiming to be Christians as a lifestyle now. And John says they are deceiving themselves. We said last time there are churches that are catering to this. Churches that, because they want to um, get people into the church, and I'm, not, and I'm not saying the pastors don't have a good heart to want to help people. It's just their idea of helping people and getting them into the church is to lower the standard, to become like the world, to reach the world. To me, that's a self-defeating proposition. I mean, you don't become like the world to reach the world. The power of the church has always been the dynamic, has always been in our differentness from the world. Not holier than thou or self-righteous, but living transformed lives. I mean, people in the world, many of them are feeling helpless and hopeless. And, and they don't need to look at a Christian and see a worldly person like themselves. They want to see somebody that's transcended this life. Somebody that has an, the answers, and the answers are working for them in their own life, that they've stopped living in sin. But, but these churches, then what happens is, as they water down the message, lower the standard, and, and, and it's basically to kind of not step on toes, not, you know, chase people out the door because, you know, we're hitting sin and stuff like that. What they do then with their man-centered, ear-tickling approach to ministry as they're giving people in churches license to sin. You know, the Bible has some pretty clear and very definitive statements on this issue. Uh, why don't you turn to Galatians 6? I'll read, we'll read a couple of these. I mean, I don't think it's very ambiguous at all. I think it's pretty clear. A lot of churches file this stuff under the banner of a controversial. Whenever you hear a church today say an issue is controversial in the Bible, what they're really saying is it goes against what society says, and therefore we don't really want to hit it. If we label it controversial, we just move on. Just move on. Nothing to see here. Let's just move on. And that's a big problem today. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, 
that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Guys, there is an immutable law of sowing and reaping. You only reap what you sow. I mean, you're not going to plant tomato seeds and reap watermelons, okay? Everything will bring forth after its kind. God laid that down as an immutable law of creation and farming. And Paul is saying, look, if the general pattern of your life is to sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap of the Spirit. In other words, you're demonstrating you're a child of God. The general pattern of your life is to sow to the flesh, you're going to of the flesh reap hell, corruption. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, this is just a flat-out definitive statement. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed and justified and you were saved, basically, okay? Understand, these are not sins. These are not sins. This is a lifestyle. He didn't say, and such did some of you. He said, and such were some of you. A Christian can commit any one of these sins and repent and not go to hell, of course. But we're talking about people who practice these things as a lifestyle. They're demonstrating that they don't have the Spirit of God inside of them. This is what John is hitting. Uh, he's not talking about backslidden Christians in these verses, comparing God's kids with the devil's children. He's talking about people who are churchgoers. I mean, there no, would be no need for John to compare Christians with the world. I mean, that's obvious, okay? He's comparing true Christians with religious churchgoers that are unbelievers. That's the issue. Verse 8, the latter part of verse 8, he said, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And uh, here in 1 John 3, verse 8, but also in verse 5, John gives two reasons why Jesus came and died. First of all, to take away our sins. We looked at that last time. That's pretty obvious. And number two, to destroy the works of the devil. What, what exactly does John... The first one's pretty obvious, as I just said, but what does John mean by saying that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil? Well, listen, the works of the devil are many. He's involved in many nefarious works throughout the world, okay? But, but here's the thing you need to understand, all right? The works of the devil are many, but they all revolve around his one main goal, to keep people in darkness so that they, they remain cursed and condemned. The whole idea behind sharing the gospel with an unbeliever they're in darkness, and we want to see them come into God's marvelous light. In other words, to embrace the truth that will set them free and uh, to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. You remember when Paul, in Acts 26, you might want to turn there. Well, you remember in Acts 26, 
when uh, Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa of how the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and called him into the ministry. Acts 26, verse 16. Paul said that Jesus said, I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the whole world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Now the Lord Jesus is talking to Paul, or at this time it was Saul of Tarsus. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Listen, here's a description of what Paul's ministry is going to be. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So that, in a nutshell, is what ministry is all about. Of course, once a person gets saved, then a new phase kicks in, their uh, sanctification, their discipleship. But Jesus is commissioning Paul to go to the Gentiles primarily, but he always had a heart for his Jewish brethren, so he always witnessed to them too. But uh, here's what I, I'm sending you to do. Here's what the gospel is intended to do. To open the eyes of the blind, to turn them from Satan's darkness, his lies, to God's truth, his light, right? Uh, to um, release them from the captivity to the devil. Jesus himself said that uh, the purpose of his coming to the earth was to seek and to save those who were lost. That's Luke 19, verse 10. Or in other words, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Of course, the only thing powerful enough to destroy the works of the devil, and again, I'm thinking of releasing them from Satan's bondage, darkness, uh, captivity. The only thing strong enough to destroy the works of the devil in a person's life where now they are set free and become children of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what... We are commissioned to go into all the world and to preach the good news, right? 1 John 3, verse 9. John says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, God's seed, remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, there are some Christians that use this verse to teach the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. That once a person gets saved, they never sin ever again. How many think that's right? I wish I had a little uh, bug in their car on the expressway, you know, when somebody cuts them off to see if they're really that perfect. But here's the thing. The Bible does not teach once we get saved, we never sin again. We know John wasn't teaching it because earlier in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, here's what he said. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So obviously, you know, when we get saved, we don't stop sinning. We should sin a whole lot less than we used to, but we never this side of heaven, are going to be perfect. That's what the rapture is going to fix when the trumpet sounds and the Lord shouts and uh, we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will be instantly transformed 
into a perfect uh, body. This mortal will put on immortality. We talked about this last time, okay? Then we will be made perfect. But until then, we're still, as Paul called it, dragging around this body of death. It's like a corpse that's uh, tied to our back. And we're dragging this thing everywhere, and it's not pretty, and uh, it's a lot of work, and uh, we hate it, but so we just have to make the best of it and just keep drawing close to Jesus and uh, that kind of thing because the flesh will be with us until the rapture when it's jettisoned and I receive a glorified body, all right? Besides one last thing about Christian perfectionism, if that doctrine was true, it would negate all the admonitions, all the commands in the New Testament to live holy, righteous, sanctified life. I mean, what would be the point if we never sinned once we got saved? You could forget all that. It would be unnecessary, okay? So verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Again, I like what Worsby said on this. He said, and I quote, Whoever, Whosoever is born of God does not practice sin. Why? Because he has a new nature within him. And that new nature cannot sin habitually. John calls this new nature God's seed. Physical life produces only physical life. Spiritual life produces spiritual life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. Christians have been born again. Peter tells us not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God which lives and abides forever. We are saved by faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. In the miracle of the new birth, the Holy Spirit imparts new life, God's life, to a believing sinner. And as a result, the individual is born into the family of God. Just as physical children bear the nature of their parents, so God's spiritual children bear his nature. The divine seed is in them, end quote. Now, it is true that uh, once we are born again, we receive a new nature, God's nature. The old nature, though, doesn't leave us. We, we wish it would, uh, but it doesn't leave us. It's, it remains and now seeks to dominate us. I should say continue to dominate us. It dominated us all the years before we got saved, right? So now we are saved. We get a new nature, but the old nature sticks around. And now the war goes on, as Paul talked about in Galatians 5, the, the, the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are two are in constant opposition to each other. So the old nature of the flesh is still there, and it wants to continue to dominate us. We choose which one wins, the new nature or the old nature. And we said last time, how do you determine which one wins? The one you feed more. The one you feed more, okay? But a Christian has an old nature from his or her physical birth, that old nature we receive from Adam, and a new nature from his or her spiritual birth, that nature we receive from God. And as God said with regard to the original physical creation, again, everything will bring forth after its kind. So before you got saved, you just had a fallen nature, you and I, and therefore we just brought forth the, the evil fruit that the fallen nature produced. When we got saved, we received a new nature, the nature of God, and now we have the capacity. We don't have to do it. You don't have to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, no Christian has to bear. I mean, it's not automatic. It is if you keep drawing close to Jesus and stay in the Word. He said in John 15, it is automatic then. 
But we choose whether we're going to be in church, in fellowship, in the Word. We choose that. If we choose not to do it, if we decide that we're going to, you know, try to have Jesus and then still hang out with the old friends and go to the old places and do the old things, well, we might be saved. I don't know the heart. But if a person is truly saved and still lives a carnal life, well, they're, they're saved by grace, but there's not going to be very much fruit, if any, that is born from their life. And that's the goal of our Christian life, to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Jesus said that again in John 15. Well, we are born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations. And um, just to hit this again, because it's so important, and it's really the heart of what Paul is saying here. Once you you're a new creation now, you've received Christ. God has moved inside. The Holy Spirit has given you the nature of God. Okay, And now you have new desires. Just as everything wanted to brought forth after its kind before you got saved, the old original creation, right? As a new creation now, you have the nature of God and you have these new desires. Uh, things you didn't want to do in the past, now you love to do. Go to church, read the Bible, be in fellowship with God's people, worship Him. Somebody was saying, uh, I think it was in prayer this evening before service, that uh, they were reading about Christians in the underground church in China and they get together and they worship for six hours. Just worship for six hours. Now I understand that's a, that's a unique situation because these folks are living uh, you know, with the uh, possibility of being uh, killed, martyred at any time. But what it does is it has given them a boldness. They're ready to go home. If you live with the constant possibility, you could go home at any moment because of the outward political persecution you're hiding out with other Christians and at any time they could burst through the doors, arrest you and execute you. If you're going to continue in your faith, you come to terms with something like that. And you adopt an attitude that says, you know what, Lord, my life is in your hands. And to be like Paul said, to be here, that's great. To go home is even better. It's a win-win. Okay. And you begin to think that way. And but see, that's that's the radical change that happens in a person's life when they receive Christ and the Spirit of God moves in. New desires. Who in this room before you got saved? The old life. Ever thought there would come a time when you would take time out during the week in an evening to come and study the Bible or to sing praises to God, right? Or to hang out with other Christians or to say, praise the Lord. I had a lady in the church said, well, God was working. Well, I, I might become a Christian, but I'll never say praise the Lord. I'll never say that. And she got saved a few months later. She's running across the sanctuary, hugging people. Praise the Lord. Good to see you. Hey, things change. Things change. God works, right? And we're not the same person. Um, look, true children of God can and do sin. But they can't go on living habitually in sin. You know why? The Holy Spirit won't let you get away with it indefinitely. Oh, he'll give you a little time to have your little fling. Not that he's justifying it or, or wants it, but, you know, the goodness of God leads us to repentance, and so the Holy Spirit will give you a little time, get your head on straight, and, and rethink this whole thing, you know, and, 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 and get back to God. If you don't, 
in a timely manner, now he starts ratcheting up the pressure. And depending on how hard-headed you want to be, believe me, you're not going to win this battle. You just aren't going to win this battle. I mean, well, I'm going to say try it. Don't try it. In fact, we don't have to try it. We, we got somebody who lived it himself, and he can share with us. Turn to Psalm 32. I mean, you know, the Spirit of God will not let a believer live habitually in sin. He will make their life so miserable that they will eventually be broken and want to get their life right with God. If you doubt that, listen to what David went through the year he was backslidden because of his sin with Bathsheba. He talks a little bit about it in Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5. I'll read you out of the New Living Translation, second edition. He said, verse 3, When I refuse to confess my sins, he's stubborn. Okay, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I get the impression I couldn't take it anymore. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Wow. Praise God, you know. Now, at the end of verse 10, John says that those who don't practice righteousness are not of God, nor are those who don't love other Christians. Again, he's comparing true Christians with phony or counterfeit Christians. And as we said a few weeks ago, in this epistle, John is not speaking categorically. He is speaking in general terms, presenting the ideal, the ideal, not the actual, the ideal. Okay, you have to understand that. Because when John says things, if you take them categorically, uh uh-oh, we're all in trouble. I mean, Christians love each other. Well, okay, but there's a couple of folks I'm not that crazy about. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Look, we're a family, families fight. You know, come on, who here who belongs to a family hasn't had some fights with your, you know, but I like to think if if something ever happened where there was uh, some kind of a trial or some kind of a, uh, a something that w- happened in a person's life that maybe we were a little at odds with, another Christian, and suddenly they were going through a really bad time that we would drop whatever anger or resentment, we would run to help them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're still family. Okay, I wish the body of Christ wasn't so carnal that we would carry grudges. That if we had a falling out, we'd get, get it right right away and, and move on. Doesn't always happen that way. But John is speaking not you know about every situation. He's talking in general now, the ideal. Ideally, and, and, and for the most part, in general, Christians love each other. We love each other, right? If you hate Christians, how could you be a Christian? Because Christians are children of God. You are a child of God with God as your father. How do you hate other Christians? Okay? Again, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, 
when John says this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, what he's basically saying is, guys, I'm not telling you anything you already know. I'm not sharing with you any new deep insights. And again, he's coming against Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that they had secret wisdom. They were privy to, to hidden spiritual truth that not even the apostles were privy to. And it was absolutely essential to have this new truth that only they had. You had to learn it from them and then you could really know God. And John is saying, look, that is a lie from the pit. If it's new, it's, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it ain't true. And John is saying, look, what I'm sharing with you is not new truth. You've heard this message from the first day you became a Christian, that the Christian life is all about loving each other as fellow believers. That's what it means to be a child of God. So in that regard, I'm not teaching you anything you don't already know. It's a message you've heard from the beginning. Verse 12, well, verse 11 once again, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. John holds out Cain as a prime example of what he's talking about. Someone who professed to know God but hated his brother, in fact, went ahead and murdered his brother because his works, Cain's works, were evil and his brother, his brother Abel's works, were righteous. Turn to Genesis 4. Let's look at this for a second. Because John puts his finger on something very important here. Let's look at this whole account that John refers to about Cain and Abel. Both, of course, were sons of Adam and Eve. Genesis 4, verse 4. So they both brought an offering to God. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. The Hebrew is, was burning with anger. And his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? For if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now here's what you're not getting, okay? They both brought sacrifices to the Lord. How did they know what to do? Well, obviously, God instructed them. God had told them what they both needed to do to approach him. So long before you had the law under Moses codified, it was already verbally being transmitted from God to Adam and Eve and their children and so on. All right, And obviously what God had told Cain and Abel was the correct uh, sacrifices to, to bring a sacrifice, no doubt what kind of animals, because some were clean, some were unclean, and, and all of that, okay? It appears from the text that Abel obeyed what God had said, followed God's instructions to the letter, and approached God on God's terms. God accepted it. He accepted Abel. Cain, for whatever reason, decided he didn't want to do it that way. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and offer it to God, and demand that God accept it. 
So Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain brought the works of his hands, the fruit of the ground, as a farmer. God accepted Abel's sacrifice because sin is atoned for through blood. I mean, God taught that to Adam and Eve when they first sinned in the garden and covered themselves with fig leaves. And God says, no, that's not going to do, and killed a couple of animals and covered them with skins, the skins of the animals. To communicate right up front, you cannot cover your shame, the shame of your sin through the works of your hands. That's religion. But you can only cover or atone for your sins through a blood sacrifice. As God would go on to say in Leviticus 17, 11, I have given you the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But these verses in Genesis 4 teach us the very thing that John is stating in his first epistle, that starting with Cain killing Abel, now this is the first recorded murder on the face of the earth, if you don't count Satan's murder of Adam and Eve in the garden, which he did spiritually, not physically. Now, there might have been other murders on the face of the earth before this one. I don't know. I don't think so. But this is the first recorded murder on the face of the earth, Cain killing Abel. And basically the idea is that you have Abel following God's prescription on how to approach him, and Abel deciding that he was going to invent his own religion. Uh, some have called it you know, self-styled or do-it-yourself religion, where you reject what God says, God, I don't care for that, uh, and I'm going to do it my way. And this seems to be what Cain had in mind. This seems to be what the Bible is really keying in on. And of course, the New Testament writers, Jude and John, and maybe uh, Jesus himself, uh, came against Cain, and Paul did too, for this very thing. That Cain, and, and he's the father of all do-it-yourself religious folks that um, feel that you know their religious observances, whether they you know sacrifices, sacraments, lighting candles, praying rosaries, whatever, you name it, that that should earn them God's favor, earn them a place in God's kingdom. Those folks who believe that way have often persecuted the true children of God who believe that we approach God, that we have fellowship with God, and that we go on living with God for eternity because of what Christ did. So it's the idea of that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That mentality has caused a lot of true believers to be put to death at the hands of professing Christians. There have been a lot of canes down through the history of the church age who have killed a lot of God's people. These are phony, religious, self-righteous Christians, quote-unquote, again, who have martyred more of God's true saints than any other group in history. Now, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And if you study the Roman Catholic Church in history, you will discover that the popes were guilty. They, they kept their own standing armies because they intimidated people into submission. And if that didn't work, they flat out butchered them by the thousands and tens of thousands. I read somewhere where one pope in one day killed more Christians than I can't remember how many Roman emperors. They were brutal, okay, brutal. In fact, the, the word John uses for Cain murdered his brother is a Greek word that means to butcher, to slaughter. It was a brutal thing. That's what the Catholic Church did. Now, are there others? Jesus said in John 16, 
he said to his disciples, there's coming a day when those who kill you will think they're doing God a service. Of course, the short-term fulfillment was the scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish leadership who killed true Christians thinking they were a cult and so on. The long-term fulfillment, yes, was uh, the Catholic Church, but then you have the Muslims. There's coming a time when those who kill you would think they're doing God service. Muslims butcher Jews and Christians because they believe they're serving Allah, their God, who they believe is the true God. So just we have to be careful. This What John is pointing to, he's talking about true Christians love other Christians. If you don't love other Christians, then you're not a true Christian yourself. Why would he be saying that? Because there were folks that clung to, you know, every time Paul came into a town or an area, preached the gospel, people got saved, the church was planted, eventually Paul moved on. And right behind him would come the Judaizers. These Pharisees who profess faith in Christ, but believed that to become a Christian and to be saved, you first had to be circumcised, become a Jew, and keep the law. So they made Judaism the entry point to the Christian faith. And of course, they hated the preaching of the true gospel, that just by faith alone, because they still wanted to hold on to their works. I mean, they'd invested all their lives as Pharisees into keeping the law down to the smallest detail. To take that away from them and just say, well, Gentiles get saved by just believing was anathema to them. So they wanted to work it where they can blend the two together. You're saved by grace through faith, but grace means you have to work. Again, this is what Roman Catholicism taught me. They, they use the same words, but they define them differently. So grace is a gift, right? We're saved by grace. It means unmerited favor. We get something we didn't deserve. It's a gift of God, eternal life. The Catholic Church says, well, grace is actually works. You earn grace. You earn little installments of grace by going to Mass and lighting the candles and praying the rosaries and, 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 uh, and whatever else you do, right? Keeping the, the holy days and so on. And by doing that, you earn little installments of grace which accrue and eventually earn you your salvation. You're doing the same thing that Paul said to the Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are you not trying to be made perfect in the flesh? Paul denounced that, trying to blend grace with works and come up with some kind of a religious system that is, in God's eyes, anathema. Now, as John points out, the way of true righteousness is the way of Christ and the cross. Jesus said, talk about the two roads, the broad way and the narrow way, right? And one leads to eternal life, the narrow way, and the other, the broad way, leads to hell. You have to understand that when the Lord presented that in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, he wasn't contrasting belief with unbelief in the sense of religion with secularism. Both of these ways, both of these roads, the broad way and the narrow way, they were both marked this way to God, this way to heaven. One, though, is very broad. We get the idea it's inclusive, tolerant, okay? The other is very narrow. It's the way of the cross. It's Christ who said, I'm the only way, right? But we're living at a time, guys, and I believe it's just a preparation for Jesus' return. I, I, I really believe that as crazy as things have gotten and as apostate the church has gotten, it just tells us Jesus is coming soon. I was just reading yesterday, I think it was. Well, first of all, I was reading this one article about this church in Great Britain, one of these old cathedrals. 
Uh, I forgot what the denomination, doesn't matter, it was dead, completely dead. But gigantic cathedral, and uh, pastored by this woman, and her title was the very reverend whatever. I'm not kidding you, that was her title. The very reverend, then her name. Well, nobody was coming to the very reverend's church. (laughs) I saw pictures online, okay? I mean, you walk in, it's like one of these out of a movie, big, massive, cavernous sanctuary. Nobody's there. So what she decided to do to get people in, she had a company come in in and install carnival rides. Church installs carnival rides. Google it. Not now. <laughs> Every time I say that, somebody's, and I Google it right away. Don't Google it now. Wait till you get home. You see the very reverend sliding down a big slide. People are playing putt-putt golf. There's a merry-go-round. Oh, yeah, you're drawing all kinds of people into the church. You're not drawing them to Christ. I, I read another article about how many Young people that were raised in evangelical Christian homes have turned away from that because it's too intolerant. It's too narrow. And uh, one of these uh, gals, an evangelical Christian, at least that's how she identified herself, um, but then she started to wrestle with her sexuality. And because, of course, the evangelical church, quoting the Bible, denounced homosexuality, she decided rather than obey what God said, she would just walk away from this narrow branch of the Christian church and find a more tolerant brand of Christianity, which she found, it's out there, which allows her to be who she wants to be, live how she wants to live, and still feel right with God. This is where we are. This is what John's coming against. Of course, I don't know if it was as bad in his day as it is in our day. I probably was. But this is what we're living with. Now, here's the thing. Are we going to bow to the culture and water it down and just be like the world to keep from being persecuted? Or are we going to stand up for the Lord and be faithful to the end? If it, even if it means someday we are arrested, imprisoned, maybe even persecuted or martyred. Well, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I can go through that. If you were going through it, God will give you the grace to go through it. I mean, when you're going through the circumstance... The grace is available. God doesn't give you the grace until you're facing the the trial or the circumstance, you know? It's like over the years I've seen women who were married to guys who were unsaved and just really were treated them lousy. Now, I'm not talking about beating them up physically because we always tell a gal, you need to separate. You are not to be a punching bag for any man. But no, I'm talking about guys who just weren't saved and we hassle them about reading their Bibles at home and going to church and and, uh, you know, just all this thing, just just making their lives miserable. You know, and, and other women were like, I, I, can't, I, I could never do that. I, I don't know why she hasn't just divorced the guy. I could never do that. Well, but you're not going through it. God's given her the grace because she's going through it. If you were going through it, he'd give you the grace. So, I mean, so we have to just draw on the grace of God for the moment and every moment, you know, and so on. But um, as John points out, True righteousness, which is the way of the cross, the way of Christ, is good. That's what he says. Whereas any other way to get to God is evil because it's self-styled. It's the way of human works is the idea. And that's what he's contrasting here. You remember what Jesus said in John 10, verse 1, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, 
but climbs up some other way the same as a thief and a robber. Is being a thief and robbing people, is that good or evil? It's evil. Who's the door? You don't enter the sheepfold by the door, but try to climb up into the sheepfold. The family of God, any other way? Who's the door? Jesus. I'm the only way to the Father. You want to get to the Father, you have to come through me. Anyone who doesn't come through me, but tries to go some other way through religion or some other works-oriented system, that's evil in the eyes of God. You're trying to, just like Cain, trying to approach God on your terms, do what you think. Look, I get the impression from Cain, he, he knew what God had said. He didn't care. Okay? I don't care. I'm not bringing that. I'm bringing the works of my hands. And God better be thankful I'm coming at all. Oh, I get it. See? Like we're doing God a favor. Oh, I'm so happy they're coming to me. Isn't this great? They're coming to me. Like God, you know, like he's insecure. Okay? People think that. They're like they're doing God a favor. Well, he should be glad I'm in church. He's blessed I'm here. Right. Yes. Yeah, he's blessed I'm So anyways, back to 1 John 3. Verse 13. John says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Listen, when John says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Does that sound like something Jesus warned us about? John 15, verses 18 and 19, he said on the night before the cross, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. The world loves its own, those that belong to it. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know what happens when the world hates us? Rejoice, because you know you're on the right team. You're on the right side, okay? Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Hey, persecution isn't fun. But at least you know, if you're being persecuted for the cause of Christ, you're on the right team. You are truly born again. Because no unbeliever, no unbelieving Christian counterfeit churchgoer is going to stand for persecution. They come to church to be blessed. They call themselves Christians because they want to get things from God. Jesus said it, right? In the parable of the seed that fell on, what was it, the... Uh, the shallow or the thorny soil, I forgot which one, but these are the folks that come to church and hear the gospel and I want to get saved and come up and pray the prayer. But as soon as persecution arises for, uh, for the sake of the word, they fall away right away. Because it's not about persecution. They, you know, they didn't sign up for persecution. You got these guys on, on, on TV and radio promising folks everything from Cadillacs to jet planes if they come to Christ and get saved. Persecution, that's not even in the, you know, that wasn't even in the fine print. There was no fine print when I signed up for this. Now, I know that when people read 1 John 
he who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That I think most people, when they re read that, would probably think to themselves, I, I've never murdered anybody. He's calling me a murderer. I've never murdered anybody. However, they are either ignorant of or have forgotten what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, again, chapter 5, verse 22, that God doesn't only consider the outward actions of a person's life as sin, listen, but also the inward attitudes of their heart. Look, all sin begins in the heart with a thought, a desire, and God looks upon the heart so that even if they never actually murder anyone, if they have harbored hatred in their heart towards another person, in the eyes of God, they have committed murder against them. In other words, be, quote, he uh, made a humorous, but I think a penetrating point with regard to this. He said, and I quote, a visitor at the zoo was chatting with the keeper of the lion house. I have a cat at home, said the visitor, and your lions act just like my cat. Look at them sleeping so peacefully. It seems a shame that you have to put those beautiful creatures behind bars. My friend, the keeper, laughed. These may look like your cat, but their disposition is radically different. There's murder in their hearts. You'd better be glad the bars are there. Worsby says, the only reason some people have never actually murdered anyone is because of the bars that have been put up. In other words, the fear of arrest and shame, penalties of the law and the possibility of death. But we are going to be judged by the law of liberty someday, James 2.12 tells us. The question, listen now, the question is not so much what did you do, but what did you want to do? What would you have done if you had been at liberty to do as you pleased? This is why Jesus equates hatred with murder and lust with adultery, both out of Matthew 5, end quote. Let me give you a caveat, and I'll close with this. I think it's important, all right? Because I've heard this uh, over the years. And you got guys on radio and TV. You got to watch those guys on radio. Be careful with them, all right? Uh, you know, some teachers, some pastors have actually said, well, you know, Jesus said if a man looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's already, he committed adultery in the eyes of God. So there are teachers who will tell women that if your husband's lusting after another woman, he's committed adultery, now you have biblical grounds to divorce him. It is true that God sees the heart. And that lust in the heart, in the eyes of God, is still like adultery. It's still sin, right? But you cannot take a sin of the heart and apply it to then outward consequences. If you're going to do that, then what about the person who hates another person in their heart? Should we try them for murder and execute them? I mean, think about that, okay? I mean, it sounds good, especially if you're looking for an out. Get rid of this bozo. I mean, you know, I, just give me something. Pastor, something that I can, you know. Oh, there it is, right? I know he's looking at other women. He's lusting. He's committed adultery. I'm free. I can divorce this guy. No, you can't do that. It is sin in the eyes of God. But we cannot 
hold someone to consequences of an outward sin until they commit an outward sin, like murder. Then, of course, we have outward consequences, okay? So just be careful with that, all right? I'm not, I'm not justifying a man lusting after a woman. I mean, that's not my point. The point is we have to see things in their context, and we have to interpret them and then apply them properly. There's too much of this quick, you know, pulling stuff out of context, making a quick uh, interpretation and then application, and people get destroyed. Families get destroyed. I've heard pastors teach, and I am totally against this, but I've heard pastors teach that, um, not many, but a few, that unless you divorce for biblical reasons, unfaithfulness, that divorce doesn't count in the eyes of God. So you can get divorced and remarried for unbiblical reasons. In other words, your spouse never cheated on you. And you can get divorced from the second gal, marry a third gal, you know, and maybe between the three women, you have, you know, ten children. In the eyes of God, he never recognized the second and third marriage. So what you need to do to get right with God is to divorce the third wife that you're currently married to, go back and remarry the first wife. Now, that sounds very spiritual to some people. Here's the problem. We're talking about the ideal. The Bible says things that, you know, ideally, you, you don't get divorced for unbiblical reasons. You hang in there. You pray. You ask God for grace. You die to self, and so on. But people don't want to do that, okay? They, they don't want to do that. The problem is, if we were all ideal Christians, we, there wouldn't be any problems in the church. I like the verse out of Proverbs. I forgot the exact reference, okay? Without the oxen, the stall is clean, but much strength comes to the work of an ox. Let me paraphrase that. Without the people, the church would be nice and clean, spotless. It's like a clean barn, no animals. But the body of Christ is a family, is people, people with baggage, People that are imperfect. It's messy, okay? We have to clean up messes, all right? People get married and divorced and remarried and divorced, and we're not condoning it. It is what it is in a fallen, broken world, and hopefully they're, they're getting closer to Christ as time is going on until eventually they say, enough of this. I'm just sinning all over the place. God, forgive me. I don't want to, from this point on, I want to be faithful. Okay, praise God. But then some well-meaning teacher gets in there and starts interpreting things, and pretty soon he's breaking up current families. To, to and I don't think there's many people that get divorced the third person they're married to to go back you know, 20 years ago when they divorced their first spouse. Look, as the old saying goes, I'm not making light of this subject, please, believe me. You can't unscramble an omelet. You can't unscramble an omelet. Life can be messy. We don't always do what we should do, Okay. So what do we do? You, you, you recognize you did something wrong. You confess it to God and ask for grace to not do it again. If you can make it right, make it right. Sometimes you can't make it right. Okay? Life is messy sometimes. But by God's grace, He loves us and wants us to keep drawing close to Him that we can become more and more like Christ and we won't have to be you know, so messy in the way we live our lives. Amen. So next week we will continue on. Let's pray, Father.
We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace, your great mercy and love toward us, Lord. And Father, our um, weaknesses, our shortcomings and failings, we're not, you don't justify them. You're not, you're not, you're not saying that, you know, uh, because we're uh, fallible, uh, it's okay for us to sin. You're just a God who says, when you do sin, I love you. I will do my best to put things back together. But um, sometimes your sins make messes that I can't fully clean up, and you have to live with the consequences. So, Lord, give us grace that we just do it right the first time, that we obey from the heart at the first and don't have to learn hard lessons and devastate a lot of people around us because of our own stubbornness and selfishness and pride. Give us grace, Lord, to be like Jesus and more and more every day. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.